episode 147, what it really takes to help manage diabetes. Today, I speak with David Weingard, who is the founder and CEO at Fit4D. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. An app can certainly help manage diabetes, but only in the exact circumstance that the patient already believes they need to use the app and has the resources and wherewithal to actually do so. But for the multitude of other patients, an app by itself won't necessarily work because the patients who need it aren't actually using it. And then there's the question of stickiness. As is clear, if you read, I'm going to say one tech article, lots of apps get downloaded and most get opened up approximately one time. Diabetes isn't going to be managed by a one-time app use, no matter how magical the user interface is. So enter David Weingard, who is the founder and CEO of Fit4D. We talk today about the key ingredients to manage diabetes. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David. Stacey, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about diabetes today and the, the trend in this country. So I know probably most listeners to this podcast are incredibly familiar with the general overall trends, but why don't you level set us here today? We're in a definite crisis here in the U.S. There's over 29 million people with diabetes and over 60 million people with prediabetes. Almost 2 million people are diagnosed every year. And we're talking about a disease that's progressive, that if we don't take care of it, it affects health and ties into cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, neuropathy, blindness, loss of other loss of limbs. It's a very serious disease, and we really need to figure out how to help the people in this country in a very scalable way. Do you have any insight into, you know, you mentioned something about how people are, it's not necessarily managed well. Why not? Like, is there something specific about diabetes in particular, like as a disease state, which is particularly troublesome to manage? Yes, it's a very complex disease. And the reason for that is because there's so many factors in controlling it. One, there's medication, and 40% of the patients who are prescribed a diabetes medication either don't start it or drop off in the first six months. Then there's food, which everything you eat raises your blood sugar, which is a primary element of diabetes, then there's exercise, and then there's weight management. And integrated in all that is people's desire and ability to take care of themselves and self-manage. Uh, a lot of people are given a diagnosis from the doctor, you have diabetes, and they're in shock or they're in denial, and they don't even know where to start. And so education is key, giving people support is key. And helping them through the bumps in the road is, is vital in getting them to take care of this really complex disease. Let's follow the dollar here. Give us some color about the economics of all this. Yeah, I mean, it's such a critical issue, not only because the society, we want to take care of our citizens of the country, right, and all the people around us. But for cost, diabetes is costing the healthcare system over $200 billion a year. 
And the a lot of that cost is for people who are what are called uncontrolled diabetics. Their blood sugars are out of control. They're at high risk for complications. They're being checked into the ER. So a lot of hospitalization costs. And a lot of that is preventative with education and with support and helping people through these bumps in the road, as I was just talking about it. The providers, the, you know, the actual physicians who are prescribing medication and who are diagnosing patients, the number one thing they want from their patients is for them to take the medication as prescribed. Because beyond the behavioral stuff like nutrition, exercise, the number one thing that people can do to keep their diabetes under control is take the medication. Unfortunately, our system is set up where the docs have maybe seven to 10 minutes at most with a patient. And that's not enough. That's just enough to prescribe, give them one or two tips and move on. There isn't really the structure to help people in between visits or motivate them to get back. So, you know, there's a lot of financial cost to the payers. There's a lot of financial cost to the employers who have people out of work and are also covering the cost of the insurance and the providers need help. So it's the whole ecosystem. Basically, what I'm taking away, and and this might just be a perfect example of what has been often said about the American healthcare system, we're great at acute, not so great at chronic. It seems like this might be a stark example of that, that basically just the structure of care that we currently have is not conducive to the kinds of support and care and and community maybe even that someone who is afflicted by a disease as complicated as diabetes needs. Yeah, it's it's an excellent point and uh, you know, I even go back to my own experience. So I was 36 when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And for everybody's benefit, type 1 diabetes is about 10% of the diabetes you hear about. It's often called juvenile diabetes. People get it when they're younger. I happen to get it when I was older. 90% of the other diabetes you hear about is type 2 diabetes. But regardless, I was basically told that I had it, given a prescription for medication for insulin, a blood glucose meter, had an appointment with the nurse, and sent on my way. And it's an incredibly complex disease. And when you're on insulin, the impact of taking insulin incorrectly is really scary. If you take too much, you could go low and pass out and need hospitalization. If you uh, take too little, you run high and can cause other complications and grogginess and all kinds of other issues with the health. And so the ability to get ongoing education and to titrate the medication and give the feedback back to the provider about what's working, what's not, to give the person support and so they don't get frustrated because diabetes doesn't go away. It's a 24-7 condition. And so, you know, helping people in that kind of framework continually between office visits is critical. So I'm kind of getting a bead on why many efforts to curtail the spread, I'm not sure if that's the right word, of diabetes in, in this country or help manage patients who, who have diabetes in this country might not have been overly successful because many of them have not been. But could you just maybe kind of finish that thought? It's not like there's been nobody trying. So what hasn't happened, which you feel is necessary in order to really make a meaningful dent here? Right. The things that have been tried that have been around for years are the doctors doing the best they can with their staff, which they're doing great work. 
But again, there's a gap in when they leave the office so don't come back or the payers who have call centers trying to call patients and reach them. But again, these are more call centers. They're not highly trained clinicians. And then in the last maybe five, six years, there's been a lot of new technology like apps, getting people to test their blood sugar, enter it, and things to happen based on the app. And we've seen a very small percent of the country use apps because it's, it's people who are motivated to not only download the app, then to go through the effort of, of entering the data to do something with the data, know how to interpret it and take care of themselves. And again, unfortunately, most people with diabetes need that education. And it even gets worse when you look at underserved communities. 28% of the uh, Latino community uh, has diabetes and 31% of the African-American community. And so it's really critical to be able to engage at a local level through the communities, through a virtual level, like fit for d does, the company that I founded, where we help people nationally, wherever they are, when they're available to be able to get help, and deliver a human touch. The human touch is there because it's critical to help people from a compassionate place, to understand what's going on in their world, to understand the why that they may not be self-managing. Sometimes they're just confused or they don't understand what the doctor told them, or sometimes they don't understand how to test their blood sugar or take the medication. And someone has to communicate with them and understand what's going on and solve for that. Going back to your app's comment for just a sec, you said something intriguing, and that is that the only people who use apps are the ones that are perhaps already engaged. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation that you're trying to engage people with apps, but the only ones who are using them have previously been engaged. Is that what you have found? How prevalent is that? You know, because I guess in order to use an app, you'd already have to really understand that you have this disease and that you need to take care of it. Like, you know, there's probably some foundational knowledge that is a must-have as a starting point. Let's look at the next level of detail. And let me be clear, we're really excited when people with diabetes use an app because then we have access to richer data to help them when we're engaged with them you know, virtually. So our clinicians, our diabetes educators, have a much better result when we're getting data about what their blood sugars are or what's happening that day. But having said that, when you look at it, look at the day-to-day obstacles first, in order to use an app, you need an iPhone, you need to be comfortable using technology. And the Medicare population, which are seniors, a lot of them are comfortable and a lot of them are not. And then you also look at Medicare folks, can they afford the technology, a web-based device versus something that's phone only? So those are some barriers at a socioeconomic level. You look at what's involved. Somebody's got to test their blood sugar either manually enter it each time into the app or some apps collect it you know, electronically and send it up to a cloud. But you have to be motivated to test your blood sugar in the first place. And unfortunately, people who are out of control, the people who are poorly controlled with their diabetes, they don't even understand why they need to test their blood sugar. They don't even understand what it means, what an A1C means, which is the average blood glucose, why the doctor prescribed insulin for them in a meal. We did a pilot years ago with a big payer in New York City where they gave us a a list of patients who are very, very poorly controlled in their diabetes and at very high risk to the system. And when we engaged with them, we found that half of them were prescribed a mealtime insulin 
to cover the food they were eating in the middle of the day. So they were taking an oral medication, but to cover a spike of eating in the middle of the day, they needed an injectable. And they hadn't filled it. You know, this population, underserved community, a lot of them were Spanish speaking. They didn't understand what the American English speaking doctor said. And so they needed somebody to translate for them, to coach them, to educate them. And by getting them to understand the importance of taking that insulin and what it meant and how to time it around the meal, we were able to change their A1C level, which is the, you know, this average blood glucose that is the indicator of complications. So all of these are levels of complexity of that are barriers to apps being prevalent to help the larger population. They, they're very good for a slice, but why it's critical to have a human touch to get people to understand the importance of things and to use an app. You know, we encourage it as much as possible. But again, it's it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, it almost sounds like the app is step two. You know, like a lot of people position, okay, like we're going to go in, we're going to have this app and it's going to solve the problem. But it almost sounds like that's forgetting a really important first step. And that is the part where you ensure that patients who really need the app understand that they really need the app, uh, which it's very, very easy to say. But everybody knows, you know, adoption and adaption are oftentimes even harder than the technology itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm also a triathlete and I'm part of a triathlon club. And you know what? Every one of these people are type A. They're downloading apps and they're looking at every single thing they do during the workout and analyzing it. Well, guess what? That's at one end of the spectrum. And not to put people with diabetes in a category because a lot of them are taking care of themselves with nutrition and their weight management and taking their medications. But unfortunately, there's 20% of them that account for 80% of the costs. And that 20% is not downloading the apps, checking everything. They're the ones that are having the most cost of the system. They're the ones that are taking days off from work and costing employers their time and efficiency. And they're the ones hurting themselves. And so we need to we need to be mindful of that and we need to engage with this population in a way that they can understand the importance of taking care of themselves uh, for their own benefit and for the system's benefit. So just speaking of triathlons, my husband is also a triathlete and he is doing the New York triathlon on Sunday. They swim in the Hudson River. And do you know, David, what they just discovered at the point where the athletes get out of the water? I I don't. I have done that race several times, but I'd be very interested. Yes. They just plucked a dismembered arm out of the water, which makes, (laughs) I'm sure, every spouse of every athlete just thrilled about this. (laughs) Unbelievable. So let's, let's talk about what does a good really first step look like? You know, so we were just talking about the, in broad strokes, what kind of help underserved communities or people who aren't necessarily going to leap right into the, you know, the end state of I'm, I'm going to monitor my diabetes very carefully. But if you had to kind of put this these things in a stepwise fashion, like what needs to happen first? What needs to happen second? What needs to happen third? Yeah, the most important thing that a person can do when they think they have diabetes or were diagnosed is stay connected to their provider. And follow the provider's care plan, take the medication as prescribed. If they don't understand what the regimen is, 
go make another appointment with the doctor and visit. And hopefully that doctor has a clinician that can work with them, or especially a CDE. A CDE, a certified diabetes educator, is a clinician with advanced training in diabetes. They're a nurse, a dietitian, a pharmacist with two years of advanced training. So at fit for d we only hire CDEs, and it's a different conversation. There's a lot of support and guidance around the diabetes that's very helpful. But no, number one is stay connected to the doctor's office. Number two, take your medication. Number three, get educated, you know, whether it's a CDE or a clinician through the doctor's office or through a program like fit for d with a payer or through community resources. Uh, learn about diabetes and learn why taking care of yourself is so important. And then the last part, which is some of the hardest, is to do it, right? People have to have a genetic disposition to have diabetes. It's not, we, there's, I think there's a, there's a myth out there that if you're overweight, you're going to get diabetes. If you're overweight and you have a genetic marker for diabetes, you're likely to get it, but it doesn't mean that it will happen. So the hardest part is, you know, once you're taking your medication and once you're staying educated and being connected with your provider is making the lifestyle changes that you could optimize your health, eating, you know, the diet recommended by your dietitian, getting out and exercising, which doesn't have to be intense. It could just be walking a few times a week, but making those changes to make all the difference in blood sugar control and in keeping the impact like cardiovascular heart attack and all the other risks at, at bay. We just went through four things that a patient needs to accomplish in order to keep their diabetes under control. So let's flip this back to the provider or other healthcare stakeholder point of view. So if I'm a provider knowing these things and knowing that, you know, patients as a population really need to make sure that they've got, you know, all four of these checkboxes checked, like, what's the right way to go about thinking about this? Or are there some, is there some overarching guidance or even another checklist that you would guide an industry stakeholder through in order to help them keep their diabetic population sound? Yeah, definitely. The providers, you know, really want their patients to take the meds and live a healthier lifestyle. They just don't have the time or the resource. So I know this is going to sound self-serving, but Asking the payer this, that they work for to reimburse for a service like fit for d As an example, here in New York City, Health First is one of our clients, uh, a big payer with a million members, and we're live with 12 of the large provider groups in the New York City area where when the doc sees that a patient is newly diagnosed or has poor blood sugar control, or they're changing medication, they're able to prescribe fit for d for their patients. And then the patients get a call from our CDEs and begin a three to six month engagement to educate them and give them the support and the care that they need to take care of themselves. And so we're really a virtual extension to the provider's office. And that is a key step in the process. Unfortunately, there's very few other resources available. And across the country, you know, those resources vary. Different cities might have community education. Some church groups may have things going on and education awareness around diabetes, but they're very inconsistent. So I think the provider is a little alone without the working in partnership with the payer 
in delivering value-based services like a Fit4D or others to their patients. I definitely want to walk through what your platform consists of, but I do want to just interject a query because you said prescribe an app, and I know that there's more and more of that going on, but do you have any insight into how often that's happening or in in what context, this, this prescribing of apps? Yeah, it's a small percent. I mean, there's a lot of education that the docs have to go through, and they're busy. They're staying up on the latest medications. They're staying up on so many things. And uh, primary care physicians are not diabetes specialists. They're taking care of the whole patient. Endocrinologists are the diabetes specialists, and there's precious few of those as well. It, it's really a very tough situation in this country now for people with diabetes because there's not enough endocrinologists, and there's certainly not enough diabetes educators. So the only solve is to integrate technology into the mix. And I think as time goes on, the docs will become more educated on different technologies, whether it's Fit4D or it's an app or it's something else that can help their patients. But right now, we're really at the very beginning of the journey because they're, they're strapped. They don't have time to do much other than, you know, get through their patient load and stay up on the latest medications and the core industry, let alone learn, go on the side and learn technology. There are those who do, but they're a very small percent. Yeah, I just actually saw, I got a press release from someone who just came up with actually a, a way to prescribe apps. It's called Responsive Health, which I thought was was very interesting. Okay, so let's talk about what this best practice provider extension might look like, or at least what it looks like within Fit4D. So say that prescriber prescribes patient just diagnosed with diabetes or, you know, patient is uncontrolled, an existing patient is is uncontrolled. What does the provider do and and then what do you do right off? So the provider prescribes Fit4D. They they have marketing literature from their payer, whether it's Health First or a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan or uh, Humana, where we went live in the last month. And so they'll have material and they'll say, you know what? Highly recommend you work with Fit4D to take care of your diabetes. Unfortunately, a very small percent of the patients, again, this goes back to the motivation, will actually make the call and let us know that they were prescribed Fit4D. So what we also do is we get a roll-up of patients through the provider groups and through the plans that tell us who's poorly controlled, and we reach out to them, and we begin to develop a relationship. And the diabetes educator, one of the things that people with diabetes can't stand is getting a call from a call center and tell that someone's reading a script. So instead, we really come from that from a compassionate place of finding out what's happening in this person's world. How can we help? You know, we're here on behalf of the plan for three or six months to take care of them, give them the support and education. And they may start out talking about the challenges about eating uh, that they may have in their, you know, let's say they're a Latino household and the food they're eating and had a, you know, the time crunch, you know, healthy food. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with where they are. And during the three to six months, we're going to help educate them on all the other elements that we talked about that are key to diabetes. What medications were you prescribed? Why are they important to take? How can we help you remember to take them? We have one senior, I just heard the story this week, who no matter what, you know, could not remember to take her medication, was not tech savvy to use an iPhone, and literally the CD had her put her medication on top of her plate in the cabinet. 
And so that uh, something so basic like that, that, you know, behaviorally, when the person would get the plate, they would see their diabetes medication, they take it in correlation to their meal. And so that's the kind of stuff we'll do. And we'll make sure we're available in the evenings and the weekends. We use email and text and online support groups. We use all the different type of ways people like to communicate. And we like to make sure we fit in to people's lives because the mom who's struggling kids may not be able to get help for herself, her own diabetes until after the kids are in bed or on a Saturday when maybe there's a spouse to help. We really have to make sure it works for them. And if we fit into their world and we develop chemistry with them and a trusted relationship, then we're able to help them. I have two questions coming out of what you just said. The first one is how much of this could be considered support and how much of it is evidence-based medicine? Do you know what I mean? Or in other words, there's kind of this gray area between what is kind of healthcare and then what might be considered behavioral support or psychological support or, you know, like all of the really important. So I'm not dismissing this stuff by any stretch. And then the second piece of this, so you can structure your answer in any way, is so is the answer to this question basically just having a bevy of CDEs, which sounds not super scalable, you know, like, so is the answer to this just like having as many diabetes educators as possible in order to help as many patients with diabetes as we see? It's interesting. Fit for D's model and my core belief out of my own experience with diabetes and the patients we see every day is that they need a human touch and that human touch needs to be scaled and technology is the key. So we we figured out, you know, if there's 10 different people who are in denial about diabetes and you took 10 different clinicians, they'd all handle it 10 different ways and spend 10 different amounts of time. We figured out how to programmatize it so it's scalable. Uh, at the end of the day, everyone with diabetes is different and it's gonna, there's going to be some, you know, personalization in that engagement. There are a lot of companies who provide you know, health coaching, which is primarily support. And that's good. We think that's important and that's part of what we do. But I think what's been missing is that support along with what you called evidence-based medicine. That's why we only hire diabetes educators, these clinicians with advanced training, because you know what? You can't go past a certain point in the conversation unless you're literate in the medications in the side effects. You know, for example, there's a category of drugs called GLP-1. Doesn't matter what the brand names are, but it's a category of drugs. And one of the side effects is nausea during the first month. So a lot of people stop taking it because of that side effect. And, you know, a few key times of support during that first month can get somebody through that and where they stay on it and their diabetes is much better. Or someone starting an injectable from an oral. You know, there's countless examples of this where you really can't have somebody who's a general support person help the person through these things because they're very diabetes specific. They're very clinically oriented. So again, it sounds a little self-serving, but we really believe that the human touch scaled by technology delivered by diabetes expert clinicians is the optimal solution for patients because it takes in the range of what's needed. And then wherever there are people that are tech savvy and willing to use an app, 
We love that. You know, use the app. It adds scalability. Uh, it adds, you know, self-management. And then they might need less human touch because the value we could provide is more around interpreting the data or helping, you know, when they're confused by what the data is reporting. So there will be a trend of more people using apps. And that will eventually, along with the scaled education, hopefully make a big impact in the, and a positive impact in the diabetes population. You use the term programmability and you use the term, you know, scaling with technology. So there's a lot of geeky people that that listen to the show. What does that mean exactly? Like if, if we were going to peer into your, your back end a little bit, what are you doing using technology to, to facilitate a, a CDE's ability to see more patients than perhaps they might be able to if they didn't have it? Great question. A lot of it has to do with making the right content available at the right time for the patient. And so we've figured out through our innovative years with pharmaceutical companies and others how to take those 10 patients who are in denial and create content that the CDE on the fly can pull the right thing out and use to solve in that moment based on what they're hearing from the patient. So a streamlined workflow, um, prioritizing the patients based on data we get. We work with third-party data that is telling us how people, well, who's taking their medication, who's not, whose A1Cs are good or not. Those patients get prioritized support, engagement. We'll talk to them more if they're stuck. We'll talk to them less if they're doing okay. So a lot of this is the technology from our perspective is enabling the productivity of the CDEs and scaling by more than five times the reach of a CD to patient ratio than a clinic, which we're really proud of. So, you know, that's how we use technology. The other part of the technology is making sure that we're in line and respecting all the legal policies and the data protection and privacy in this country, uh, HIPAA, which uh, protects patient privacy, and then there's evolving security uh, called uh, high trust. Uh, there's a lot involved to make sure that all this data is protected. Uh, so when we work with patients that uh, we're being productive, but we're all respecting uh, their privacy and security as well. Do you also use technology in any way to standardize care, you know, to standardize the process and f- or workflow by which the CDEs interact with the patient, which is actually a big issue in this country today that, you know, we all have seen all the JAMA articles that say that this is the best practice. This is the right way to do something. This is the evidence-based, clinically sound process by which to proceed using. And yet it doesn't happen. So our technology uses a design based on our clinical pathways that I was kind of describing about the workflow enablement. The other dimension, which is the integration of text, email, online support groups helps the scalability. So it's great to have a conversation with somebody and help them through understanding about the nausea from that GLP-1. It's even better to reinforce it with an email right afterwards that has links to articles or a video clip or something uh, meaningful that that helps them understand at a deeper level and have it as referenced. And then it's even better when we're able to text message them and remind them about their next appointment or anything else that they're doing. And online support groups have been amazing 
because on the online support groups, sometimes people will invite their family members to listen in. And we'll do a theme-based event like the challenges of holiday eating. And, you know, during, and we'll talk about recipes, we'll talk about things like that. And so someone who's struggling with their diabetes now can enroll their spouse to listen in or watch online. And that creates much more effectiveness and enrolls the caregiver and the family on the diabetes cause. So optimizing the mix of all the different technologies is really another art that we have been tinkering with and perfecting over the last nine years. David, where can someone who is interested in learning more about Fit4D go to find more information? And I know you do have two types of customers. One is payer, but you also work with some pharma companies. Yeah, highly recommend come to our website, uh, www.fit4d.com, which is F-I-T, the number four, D like David, dot com. Uh, there's also an info at fit4d.com email address. Really, at the end of the day, this is the passion of everyone in the Fit4D team, really to make a difference. So it's good for business, but it's really changing lives for the better, enriching people's lives with diabetes is why we're here. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.